spent a few minutes this week polling our staff. Perhaps you could answer the question too. I wonder if you can recall the first major world event, major news story that you ever heard in your life. Turns out the younger you are, the easier this question is to answer. As we toss it around the staff, some could remember, some could not. I can. And as I was thinking about today's sermon, I thought back to the summer of 1994. I was a wee little man, you know, the summer break between years of elementary school and in our hometown was preparing for a great summer break. And that whole summer break was upended as our average sized town was devastated by a major flood that summer. Torrential rains, downpour, flooded our entire town, and so our summer was upended. And in the aftermath, the destruction of all of that, our cable news providers also went away. And so we were stuck in our home amid a flood with this old-school rabbit-ear antenna television system set up. And I spent my days that summer, elementary school, watching Days of Our Lives. (laughs) Price is right. And flood news coverage, and it was an amazing summer. But it was there in front of that television set that I also bore witness to what I think is the first major news story that I can remember. Fully expecting to see Bob Barker, I turn on the television and instead see news footage out of L.A. Of a white, older model Ford Bronco speeding, or not so speeding, down the freeway in the middle of Los Angeles, trailed by a dozen or so police cruisers, it comes to pass, I see some knowing grins in our midst here, older millennials represent. (laughs) It comes to pass that former NFL running back O.J. Simpson is on the lam, involved in a now infamous criminal case, and this chase that he's involved in sort of sets all of this in motion. And there I am, seven, eight years old, watching O.J. run from the cops. And this has burned its way into my memory for whatever reason, right? And if we were asked and spent some time here this morning, we won't. You're probably thankful for that. We could name story after story, event after event that we can recall that seemed like seminal events in our lives. It felt like not only we, but the whole world was watching this event unfold. And this season for us, this Christmas season for all of us, has a bit of that commonality, that collective feel, doesn't it? As we move around in our city or wherever you may be from, as you move around and you hear similar songs in different people's homes and in stores and on the radio, as we see lights aglow throughout the city, as we feel the collective stress related to spending and gift giving, all of this sort of warmly ties us together, doesn't it? And at least for a moment, a brief period of time, it feels like most things are pointed generally in the same direction. At the bottom of it all, there's a reason for that. Everything we experience from the jingling of bells to the sing-along songs to the aim of our giving and our receiving, all of it is meant to incite or create within us this deep sense of joy. It's trying to create within us this deep sense of joy. There's a glimmer of hope that we might during this Christmas season experience some sort of deep fulfillment. And it's not a stretch for us to keep working our way to the bottom of these realities to discover their root cause. So we begin stripping everything away that we see around us and we find that it is one man, Jesus Christ, who is the focal point, the aim of this Advent season. His coming to earth has so captured the attention of the entire world for centuries on end. It's an inescapable reality. The whole of the Christmas season revolves around a person, a savior, 
born to take away the sins of the world. A baby first laid in a manger, became a man who then hung on a cross, who laid again in a tomb from which he was gloriously resurrected. And this is the story that we tell and retell, not only this time of year, but every single week that we gather in a space like this, we herald the truths of the gospel story. We get the first retelling of these events at the beginning of our gospel accounts in our New Testament. We think primarily Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John points to this as well. And today we'll look at a portion of one of these accounts in the book of Luke. If you have a copy of scripture, why don't we go ahead and turn to the book of Luke. We'll be in chapter one in the very beginning of chapter two. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one available underneath the seat in front of you that you're welcome to use today. You can turn in that to the book of Luke. If you don't own a Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. There are uh, free Bibles on a table in the back. There's a sign there. You can take one of those to take and keep uh, on your way out today. And so as you turn to the book of Luke in the New Testament, the larger numbers you'll find there are chapter numbers. The smaller numbers are verses. And we'll be in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, and we'll go through Luke 2. Or we'll begin with verse 57 and go through Luke 2, 7. So 157 through Luke 2, 7. Follow along as I read our passage today. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother had answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? for the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. To one in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration, registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. 
While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. We'll see from our passage today this emphasis, that we are to trust in this Jesus who has come to save us from our sins, that we are to trust in Jesus who has come to save us from our sins. These chapters in the book of Luke move back and forth, you'll notice, between what we call prophecy or foreshadowing and narrative accounts of the events surrounding Jesus's birth. So back and forth between narrative and prophecy. In particular, we see two major movements in the passage that we just read. First, we see in the birth of two men, the fulfillment of prior prophecy. The fulfillment of prior prophecy in the birth of John, the birth of Jesus. In addition to the fulfillment of prophecy, we also see a song of praise. A song of praise, verses 67 through 79. Zechariah singing this prophetic song of praise as God has been faithful to deliver his promises. With both the fulfillment and the song, the text for us this morning begins to answer what happened to be really significant questions for us as it relates to Jesus' birth. We have big questions, and this text begins to lean in to some of those questions. Though it isn't so neatly packaged, we see in the passage both what we might call the what and the why of Christmas. We see in this passage the what and the why of Christmas. What happened that provokes this Christmas season? Why did it happen? Or maybe another way to ask, what happened and what does this all mean? What happened? In the narrative portion of the passage, we witness these two births. The birth of a man named John given to Elizabeth, the birth of Jesus given to Mary. Jesus' birth is miraculous for all the reasons that we've come to know and love and sing about and reflect on at this time of year. And yet we find in the passage that John's birth is miraculous in its own way. Earlier in chapter 1, and we hit on some of this last, in last week's sermon, if you'd like to revisit that, the angel also visited, in addition to Mary, John's father, Zechariah, and prophesied concerning John's own birth. Jesus, or because Elizabeth was both getting along in years and was barren, Zechariah, upon being approached and, and prophesied to by this angel, begins to doubt what the angel was saying. She's old, unable to have children. There's no way this is going to take place. In response to his doubt, the, ang- the angel rebukes him for his unbelief. In response to his doubt, the angel sentences him to now a long period of silence. He's unable to speak, a period that lasted from the time the prophecy was given until now, the passage that we're reading as this child's birth comes to fruition. So what we see here are the very first words that Zechariah is now speaking after an extended period of silence. We note here in Zechariah's initial response, this doubt-filled response to the angel's prophecy, we note that it's curious on the part of God to respond in this way. A curious response from God to the angel's rebuke, through the angel's rebuke. Silencing Zechariah in this way doesn't seem to be silencing the doubt itself, as if God were somehow offended or put off or put far away by the fact that Zechariah doubted. Rather, we see God respond with this rebuke of silence as a sort of invitation, an invitation to Zechariah to come and see. You doubt and you question, you wonder, you ask what if, how could it be, and I'm inviting you now. Come, watch what I'll do. Wait and see. We don't get the sense that God here is put off by Zechariah's skepticism. 
He invites him to watch what he'll do. As a church, this is and will be our posture toward anyone who comes into this space with questions of their own. And this ought to be the posture of every believing person toward friends and loved ones, neighbors who can't seem to come alongside every aspect of the Christian faith as eagerly, exuberantly, quickly as we might like. Instead, we extend an invitation. If you don't believe now, you're filled with questions, come and see. Come and bear witness to God's faithfulness to us all. Perhaps you're in the room this morning and you have questions of your own, doubts of your own, and yet you find yourself swept up into some of the things that we just spoke about earlier. In this season, this Christmas season, it feels like church is the appropriate place for you to be this morning. And I want to take a moment just to pause and commend that impulse in you. It's a great choice. It's a good impulse to have. And we as a church want to invite you to continue joining us, to come, questions and all, invite you into a conversation, to invite you to ask your questions about who this Jesus is and why he has so enraptured the attention of the whole world for centuries and why he enraptures our attention from week to week, why he's the object of our praise and our love. And as we sing our adoration, we invite you to come, questions and all. We see in our passage that God has a way of welcoming doubters. No particular in this instance, he shuts Zechariah's mouth and bids him come and see. So Zechariah now will effectively sit and he'll watch as the Lord is faithful to keep his word and is faithful to keep his promise. This is why when Elizabeth bears the son in our passage, the text says that it is evidence of God's great mercy to them. God didn't diminish or do away with the doubt forthrightly, assert himself in such a way that the doubt no longer matters. Instead, he simply acts according to his character. God is merciful and he demonstrates his mercy to Zechariah. God is faithful and he demonstrates his faithfulness to Zechariah. And this has made all the difference. So many of our own doubts are alleviated when we step back and we bear witness to God's faithfulness in the past and in the present. It's not to say that every doubt will be done away with in full. Perhaps more striking is that so many people come to belief in God and come to embrace the message of the gospel with doubts in tow. We're not to valorize skepticism or doubt, but we shouldn't see them either as impenetrable obstacles to keep God's loving kindness from breaking through. One writer has put it this way, the remarkable fact about all of this remains that many doubters find reasons to believe not because every single one of their questions was answered, but precisely because they weren't. And they learned in that to be able to trust and know and be content with this God who holds them even still. So are you this morning sitting in the room doubt-filled? Are you unnerved this morning by worry, concern for what you do not yet know? God will have you still. And God will bring you along anyway to true belief. And though it doesn't happen in this way and at all times for Zechariah and Elizabeth in our passage, doubt diminished as they watched the hand of God move. They saw God's faithfulness and they were able to see it demonstrated in their own lives. Their doubts were quieted in this instance by the piercing cry of a newborn. So committed are they now to God's promises that the passage tells us 
that they defy cultural and familiar custom in naming this child. When approached to name this child, there's a little back and forth, and the passage picks up as Zechariah is coming now out of his silence. They're approached, and the mother answers. Elizabeth goes to give the name to the John, or give the name to the baby, and she's approached in verse 60, and she answers, No, he will not be called Zechariah. Instead, he'll be called John. 61, and they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to the father. He can't speak. And they ask him what he wants him to be called. And we watch as Zechariah grabs this writing tablet. And he begins to scribble in his handwriting and affirm Elizabeth's desire to name this boy in accordance with the angel's instruction. And as this is affirmed by the two of them, Zechariah thus being unable to speak, we are left to marvel. Along with what the passage says is the entire hill country at God's faithfulness and his mercy demonstrated to this couple here in the Christmas season. At the moment that Zechariah follows through, pens the name of this boy, the text tells us that his lips are loosened, that he is now able to speak. Faithful to uphold the Lord's instructions, he is able to talk for the first time presumably in months. And his first words are functionally here, a song of praise. We find here in Zechariah's words a gushing expose on the faithfulness of God. And as we'll notice as we get into Zechariah's song, he has in view two personalities, two individuals, both his own son, John, but primarily we see Zechariah after this long period of silence talks endlessly about the Messiah, endlessly about the Savior who has come, this man, Jesus Christ. We see here Zechariah's song functions as a go-between, between the birth narrative of John and the birth narrative of Jesus. It's a thread that ties the two together. So before we take a deeper look at Zechariah's song, I want to read through Luke 2, 1 through 7 once again, and bear witness to the seminal or the beginning events, Jesus' birth, and then we'll walk through Zechariah's song and show how it ties these two together. Luke 2, 1 through 7 In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cornelius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So here you have what may be familiar events. Later tonight at candlelight service, 5 p.m. here, Curtis will pick this narrative back up after these verses that we've read and we'll reflect more together on the context of Jesus' birth, what this has all meant for us. But as we look at the first portion of the story here, Jesus' actual birth, the event, the what of Christmas, we're confronted here with details that may be overly familiar. We've heard this story before. The nativity story is one of the most often told, often rehearsed, often enacted stories in all the world. It's evidence to the fact over the past month or so, hundreds of preschools around our great land have sought to do this narrative justice to varying degrees of success, right? This is a story that our culture is familiar with. It's in our cultural milieu. We know the story of Jesus. The question remains, do we know what it means? We know the what of Christmas. We could rehearse its details. 
This is the story that has captured the hearts and minds of millions across the globe over the course of centuries. Many of us are familiar with, perhaps enamored by the what? By the what? If you're until now unfamiliar with this, I'd invite you even this holiday season, tomorrow perhaps at some point to take a few minutes to open back up Luke chapter one, chapter two. Become familiar with this story, the what of Christmas, what has transpired that's captured the attention of so many. So certainly today we have in view the events themselves, the what of Christmas, we might say. But we also want to time, take time reflecting on the why behind it all. Because we see what scripture provides is more than an answer to the question simply what happened. It also reliably tells us what this all means. Why is it that the birth of this man, Jesus Christ, has so reoriented life for so many people? Why has it changed history and future for all of us? What does it all mean? We see in this text and elsewhere that the births of John and Jesus are never separated from their broader context. The story is always unfolding. John is born, Jesus is born. We're given meaning all throughout the text. Earlier in chapter one, as we're preparing for these narratives that we're in now, Gabriel's visitations to Zechariah and Mary, we're reminded of God's purposes for both John and Jesus. John will be born and he'll go before Jesus, pointing the way to him. Jesus will be born with saving purpose, with saving purpose. In addition to Gabriel's prophecies, we're reminded of the grander story that is unfolding through Zechariah's song here in 68 through 79. Remember again, as we reflect on Zechariah's song, that this is Zechariah who's been sentenced to silence, who can't utter a single word, who has not said anything. It's fitting then that the first words to flow from his mouth after this period of silence are in effect praise to this great God. What a way to insert himself back on the scene. And we see in Zechariah's song that he reflects on three different parts. First, he talks of a promised redeemer. And second, he talks of a faithful precursor. And last, he talks about the advent of life, light, and peace. So we have a promised redeemer, a faithful precursor, and the advent of light and peace. Look at 68 and 69 with me as we push through Zechariah's song and move to a close. In verses 68 and 69, we note how Zechariah is now speaking of God's visitation and redemption, not as a future event that's coming. Zechariah says in 68, he has visited us. Or 68 and 69, he has visited us. He has already come. Safe to say the faithfulness of God in Zechariah's life is confidence building. God has told him something will occur. This will happen. And Zechariah treats it now as if it's already been done. John Piper writes concerning Zechariah's posture here, for the mind of faith, a promised act of God is as good as done. For the one who believes when God makes an actual promise, that promise is considered to be already done. And that's certainly the case here with Zechariah. Zechariah throughout his song proclaims the redemption brought about by God through Jesus, whom Zechariah refers to as a horn of salvation, emerging from the lineage or the family line of David. His coming has been testified to by the prophets. Zechariah says his mercy has been promised throughout the generations. This is a story long foretold. Zechariah calls Jesus a horn of salvation. 
And he doesn't mean merely hear a horn like a musical instrument, such that salvation is merely proclaimed or announced. But he means in this moniker, horn of salvation, the horn of an oxen or of a bull, a symbol of strength, of power, and might. And Zechariah is glorying, reveling in the fact that salvation will not merely be announced at Christmas, it will be obtained by this Savior who has now come to obtain it for us. Jesus has a strong hand, a strong arm, and it's by this that he'll obtain salvation for us. He will reclaim what's his and he'll redeem to the uttermost. Zechariah goes on to mention the thrashing of enemies, and we see here that Christ's coming will have near-term effects in the culture in which he comes into. Those who choose to follow Jesus after his coming here will choose to pledge allegiance now to a different kind of king. They'll give their lives to a different kind of king in spite of what culture more broadly demands from them. Spiritually, we know too that Christ will bring about the destruction of evil. He'll deal sufficiently and finally with sin as well, dealing death its final blow. Rid of it all. Indeed, God's people, as Zechariah says, will be safe in Christ. What great comfort do we have that this Christ not only came, but that we are now safe with him. We're safe with him. And this is all to the purpose, verse 74 tells us, that we might serve God without fear and in holiness and righteousness for the rest of our days. We're saved from evil, we're saved from the effects, the ravaging effects of sin, and we're saved to this glorious life of service and holiness and righteousness the rest of our days. Christ's coming then both has near-term and far-reaching effects. Both the material and spiritual realm are affected by it. Over and over, too, throughout Zechariah's song, he refers to the foundations of this promise, God's promise to send forth a Savior. And we begin to get a sense for how the coming of Christ was both earth-shattering on the one hand and yet fully expected on the other. It changes everything, and people knew it was coming. It turns the world upside down, and people had this great expectation that that would occur. For one, God has covenanted with his people throughout the entire Old Testament. The Old Testament unfurls this story for us. We've talked about this in recent weeks in 1 Samuel, how the Old Testament continues pointing and pointing and pointing to Jesus. And two, the prophets had testified concerning his coming. We literally now see in Luke 1 and 2 this story unfolding for us. God knows what he is doing. He's faithful to keep his promises. Not only does he reflect here on a coming redeemer, he also reflects on a faithful forebearer, a faithful precursor, his own son, John. Zechariah here in his song glories in the coming of his own son and says that his son, John, will be a pointer too, a prophet of the most high, the text says, one sent not to garner all the attention for himself, but to continually, only ever, deflect attention away from himself and back onto the father. This is John's whole purpose in life. Zechariah has now given birth, or Elizabeth has now given birth to a son who will come and continually deflect attention away from himself to make much of what Jesus has done for us. And this is what's gotten the world's attention. John's purpose in life is to serve as a pointer too. And he says as much about himself later in John 3 when the apostle John captures his words. John the Baptist says that he must decrease and Christ must increase. John's life is only ever about making much of Jesus. 
What a posture for us to emulate as those who follow, as those who love Jesus Christ. So in John's miraculous birth, we see a foreshadowing kind of faithfulness. God has been faithful to John, to Elizabeth, as they give birth now to this baby. We see a foreshadowing kind of faithfulness that looks toward a greater kind of faithfulness that will come in the person of Jesus. In John's character and person, we see a foreshadowing kind of presence. In the person of John, he's actually spending his days telling us how great Jesus is. John's role is one that ought not be weird for us to imagine ourselves sliding into, particularly at this time of year. How often are we given chance to simply get the attention off of ourselves? Introverts are like, yes, please, let's do that. How often are we granted this opportunity to get attention off of ourselves and back onto the one whom this is all about? Constantly deflecting attention from ourselves back over onto Christ. It's evident for Zechariah, as it is for us, that Christ is not far from his mind. That Christ is never far from his mind. His own son was just born and God has been faithful to him and yet he is enamored with the person of Jesus. Enamored with the person of Jesus. I remember years ago when I was making preparations to get engaged to my wife, Paige. We've been uh, married 11 years, and so it took some work to try to figure out all the details of what went down during those days. But I remember in the time leading up to engagement, kind of checking off that checklist, which no one seems to want to tell you you need to do, and you're kind of making it up as you go. And so I go to Paige's dad and have the conversation, and then I have in mind getting Paige's ring. You want to get Paige's ring, it's going to be a great day. I'm really excited about what's going down. And so we get these plans together. I solicit the help of a few friends, a couple. The wife has access to a jeweler that I want to use. And so she's going to come along. My friend's going to come along with me as well. We're going to make a day of it. The jeweler is located about three hours from our hometown. And so I figure we'll leave early in the morning, make the drive up, spend the day there, get the ring, come back, everything's perfect, we're good to go. So I show up at their house, I jump in uh, their car, park mine in their driveway, and we make our way three hours away from our hometown to this jeweler. We uh, spend some time shopping, other shops, grab lunch, we make a day of it. And so we spend all this time, I get the ring, foreshadowing in this story, nothing happens to the ring. But uh, so we're working our way through this day. I get the ring, we're on our way back. We have spent probably in some 10, 12 hours on this trip, right? Half a day, maybe a little bit more than that. We make our way back to our town. We come back to their house. It's now dark. We pull into the driveway. We're pumped up. I'm especially pumped up, right, about this next step. Have the ring in my pocket. I'm ready to go. We get out of the car, and we're saying our goodbyes, and I'm hugging my friends. And all of a sudden, this look comes over the husband's face, and he's sort of confused. I'm like, what's, what's wrong? You know, everything's going well. And he looks at me, and he says, Mike, is your truck running? And then in that moment when he asks that question, I can hear too that the truck is on. And so I race around to the door and I open the unlocked door 10, 12 hours away and I look in and, and sure enough, the keys are in the ignition and the truck is on in the driveway of my friend's house. And we lose it, right? Start laughing. I check the gas. It's like a Mythbusters episode. How long can a truck run? And, you know, this kind of thing. And so we're all kind of like making these things up. And we are, just remember in that moment, and as I look back now, just remember being so lost in and enamored with getting this ring. That I jump out of a truck. I leave it running. Surprised I didn't leave it in drive. <laughs> 
spend a whole day in another town and come back, and to my surprise, I've been blessedly, gloriously distracted by something that was far more important. And this is Zechariah 2, isn't it? Rehearsing this narrative, God's been undoubtedly faithful to him. We see it in the birth of his own son, and yet his attention drifting and drifting and drifting to the one that's far more important. His mind is hard and raptured by the person of Jesus here in this song. His Christ-saving purposes are not far from his mind. They're clearly not far from ours. Zechariah's song here crescendos, we might say, with reflections toward its end on the mercy and the forgiveness awaiting those who will put their trust in Christ. That forgiveness, he says, is evidence of tender mercy. Tender mercy in verse 78. This is evidence of God's tender mercy. When God's tender mercy is demonstrated toward us, Zechariah sings, it's like God's mercy is like a sunrise rising up over a dark valley. The light of Christ so shines into the unlit corners of our hearts and allows us to walk in peace, no longer bewildered by sin. The coming of Christ means that the Savior has arrived. If we're trying to get to the bottom of all the story, if we're trying to work through its details and draw out its key central core meaning, the coming of Christ means the Savior has arrived. The baby is born in a manger, but we know, spiritually speaking, that from the vantage of the manger that we can see the cross. As we think about the events of Christmas and we think about this stable, and we think about this scene, it's not odd if our minds drift to that hill. From the vantage of the manger, we can see the cross. The coming of Christ then means that all of mankind is again now able to fulfill its intended purpose. No longer held in sin's stranglehold, but we're free to glorify God with ever-increasing joy. No longer sentenced now to the ravaging effects of sin or subject to incur the weight of God's wrath, we, we're seen now in Christ as God's delight. And this is the beautiful thing about Christmas. This is what the birth, the coming of Christ means. The coming of the Son means our salvation can now be affected. Everything now begins to change. Life is not as it once was. Everything now, because of Christ, is fundamentally different. Christ has come this way in the incarnation, God becoming man is insurance. He will then live a perfect life and he will die a sinner's death and he will be gloriously resurrected. The coming of Christ also means this too. The coming of Christ also means that he will come again. As we behold his first coming and celebrate Advent, we long for the day when he'll come again. And all of this forms the basis for our hope. It's the bottom of our joy. Where we were once found reason to despair, we now have reason to hope. Where we live life in a world so shrouded in darkness and in lies, the world has been blinded now by a bright light, and it's immersed in the one who is himself the truth. It means that we have at the bottom a reason to be joyful, and that one day our joy will be made full. That all wars and strife, all conflict, all sorrow, all misery, all will finally cease. The coming of Christ means that suffering has a shelf life and that the Savior has come. So this is what the coming of Christ means. It means, Samwise Gamgee once said, that everything sad will indeed come untrue, that all will be put back together exactly as it should be. 
And yet, this story being told the way it is, and here's how we want to end today. There is a more compelling question concerning Jesus' birth. The one we ought to attend to both now, tomorrow morning, every day thereafter. The most pressing question concerning Christmas, Jesus' birth, is not merely what happened. It's not even what does it all mean. The most pressing question for you and I is what does Christ's birth mean for us? What does it mean for us? For all that this story is, it takes on infinitely brighter hue when we find ourselves in it. It's an amazing story, one of redemption, of restoration, of putting the world back together, and yet we're found in the middle of it. And this is a beautiful thing. Just last week, I went down to the Somerville Theater off of Davis Square and was watching a movie that I kind of knew was set in Boston, but didn't realize how set in Boston it was. And so we're watching, and it's probably going to be a best picture front runner this year, and we're watching this movie, and then Boston scenes come up. I won't give a lot of spoilers or titles and things like this, but we're watching these Boston scenes come up. And then all of a sudden in this film, they have a scene inside a theater. So like a theater inside of a theater kind of thing going on. And then whispers begin in our theater, 25 or 30 of us down in Davis Square. We begin whispering to one another, and everyone's asking, is that here we're looking around for cameras like yes it's live you know but is is this here right and we're watching this movie and, and a couple couple camera cuts and they show a, 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 a i guess a scene in the theater lobby and everyone's like that's here they filmed this movie in the theater we're sitting in and this was like an incredible part of the film right and so we we all kind of have a moment and then get back into it and we walk back out into the lobby after the movie's done and we're like it's here you know and we're all having this thing it takes on a brighter hue when you have a part in it. The movie's just a movie unless it's filmed in the theater you're sitting in. The gospel story is just a story unless it means something for you. Where are you? What does the birth of Christ mean for you? We wouldn't walk out of that theater in Davis Square and then come to tell all our friends and family members, I saw this really awesome movie about Somerville Theater. Right? This wouldn't be the review that we would post online. There's this incredible movie with scenes filled with Somerville Theater, but we would rather share it maybe in that sense. We have a part. Somerville Theater has a scene. This story isn't about us, and gloriously so, and yet we have a place in it. The whole of Scripture tells us that we were made to glorify God, and we can't because of sin. The trajectory of our lives on account of our own personal sin is not everlasting life, but is eternal punishment. And yet to reverse the curse of sin in our lives, to free us from its stranglehold, God has offered, has put forth a solution, his own son, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born in a manger, both God and man, a willing sacrifice to come and now die on the cross in our stead, taking on the punishment that we deserved. And it's through putting our trust in Jesus' death for the forgiveness of our sins that we now lay hold to God's free gift of salvation. And we're invited now into everlasting life with him. So you see, the coming of Christ means for those who don't believe yet that the offer of this free gift of salvation is now extended to you, that you have a part. For the unbelieving one in our midst who can't really buy in, that is the Christmas message. That this story that we've heard about for years and that we revel and marvel at, that you have a part. 
that you have a part, that God's offered this free gift and that gift is now extended to you. So the coming of Christ means for you the hope of freedom that's found in him. Would today be the day that you put your faith, your trust in him? Unless we think the coming of Christ only ever means something for the moment we first believe, the coming of Christ means as much for the one sitting here today who already believes as it does anyone else. And it believes more today or as much today as it meant the very first time you believed it. This is the ongoing, the lasting effects of the gospel message. The coming of Christ means as much today as it meant for you the first time you believed it. In the preface of his book, Dynamics of a Spiritual Life, author Richard Lovelace writes using the illustration of a ladder. And he writes that his suspicion is, or implies that his suspicion is, most of those who follow Jesus wake up every single day of our lives and feel as if we're at the bottom of a ladder looking up. And that today is yet another day that I need to climb and earn and prove and make my way back to God by any means necessary. And yet it's Lovelace's suspicion that For those who follow Christ, we actually wake up every single day at the top of the ladder in communion with God, with God. And it's from this approval and God, this acceptance, it's in light of this love and this mercy that he has shown us. It's that acceptance by God that we ought to remind ourselves of every single time we feel like we've slipped a rung. If life's gotten you, beaten you, or gotten you beaten down this Christmas season, here's hope and good news for you. Your station is with God, approved of, in and by, through Jesus Christ, his son. If life has you weary, there's one who's come to give rest to weary souls. This is what Christmas is about. Sin has you ensnared and tangled, feels like you're 10 steps back from where you once were. Christ is begging you, urging you, come and see. Remember my faithfulness, come to me again. And this is the invitation always, ever, only on the table for us. We are approved, accepted of, loved by God in this way. And Christmas is our great reminder that that's the truth.